Well, good evening. Thank you for your patience. Uh, I'm Wendy Luger, the university librarian here at the University of Minnesota. And I, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the uh, uh, second in a season that we're now calling the Friends Forum, a series for curious minds. And tonight we are joined by cookbook author and chef Beth Dooley and novelist and avowed foodie J. Ryan Stradle. And I can think of no better antidote to the lousy weather outside to coming inside and talking about food. So tonight, uh, we're also marking the third Kirshner lecture honoring Doris Kirshner, whose lifelong interest in cooking uh, was culminated in an extraordinary cookbook collection which her family donated to the university libraries in 1995. And I want to share with you a little bit about uh, her collection. And to do that, we have Megan Coker, who is our agriculture librarian, but also the curator of the Kirshner Cookbook Collection. So Megan, want to join us? Hello, good evening. Um, so I'll give you the very brief introduction to the Kirshner Collection. It is housed in the McGraw Library on the St. Paul campus. Uh, when we received the, the Kirshner Collection, it was donated by, by Doris Kirshner in 1995 to the Department of Food Science and Nutrition, which was when she graduated from it, the Department of Home, Ec, Home Economics on the St. Paul campus. Um, and at that time, she uh, donated about 1,500 cookbooks. And her family has provided the support both for that collection and uh, for events like these to uh, encourage discussion and scholarship around food and cooking. So now our collection has grown to about 4,000 cookbooks. In this year, some exciting things that happened are that we did some digitization of our materials that are out of copyright. So our older materials can now be found in the UMedia archive, so you can access those online. Uh, you don't need to come into the library for those. Uh, but that's only a small portion of what you can get if you actually come in, and that is open to the public, as I said. Uh, Another thing that we're working on right now is that we've added about 300 ephemeral cookbooks, and those are one of my favorite, probably my very favorite things in the collection are the ephemeral items, which are those little pamphlets and brochures uh, and things like that came with your Jello that are in there. It's a really, <laughs> it's a really fun collection, really interesting. It gets used for just curious people. It gets used for researchers uh, by students, and uh, I hope that you will come to visit it. Uh, and I'll be around afterwards if you have any more questions about it. I have some books from the collection I brought over so you can get uh, an idea of our range. The books date to about the late 1800s to current. We buy new books every year still for the collection so that it is it's a growing research collection. All right, thank you. Well, some of you may wonder how cookbooks become scholarship, but if you think about it, you know, a cookbook from 1950 has information about portions, uh, the kinds of ingredients that were used, the, often the photographs tell you something about the ambiance and how to set one's table, so it's, it's a wonderful uh, resource for, for scholarship uh, and for students learning about, about food over time. 
So before we get into the main course tonight, um, I'd like to acknowledge that the Friends Forum is sponsored by the Friends of the Libraries. And for those of you who are friends in the audience, congratulations. We appreciate your commitment. And those who are not friends, uh, your program has information about how to join and how you can support wonderful programs such as the one tonight. And also gives you a forecast of what's uh, uh, upcoming the rest of the year. Now let's talk about food. In the US today, there are more than 38,000 grocery stores, 8,400 farmers markets, 624,000 restaurants, and get this, over 2 million food blogs. <laughs> and the rise of food trucks is bringing that notion of restaurant and eating experience to our curbs uh, each and every day. Julia Child started an entire revolution when the French chef premiered on PBS in 1963, and now we have whole channels devoted to food and cooking and contests. And as the great James Beard once said, food is our common ground, a universal experience. And it's the love of food and love of writing that drew Beth and Jay Ryan together in mutual admiration. Beth is a New Jersey transplant and has been covering the local food scene in the northern heartland for over 30 years. She's the author of six cookbooks, including Savoring the Seasons of Northern Heartland with Lucia Watson, a James Beard nominee, Minnesota's Bounty, The Farmer's Market Cookbook, the Birchwood Cafe cookbook with Tracy Singleton and Marshall Paulson, and her most recent book, In Winter's Kitchen, Growing Roots and Breaking Bread in the Northern Heartland. And that's really a collection of stories. It's part memoir and part serious study of foods in this region. I really encourage you to read, well, both of our, our author's books tonight. Beth writes for the Star Tribune and appears regularly on Care 11 TV as well as the Minnesota Public Radio. And she teaches at the university's Landscape Arboretum. Now, J. Ryan Stradle grew up in Hastings. That would be Hastings, Minnesota. But now he hails from Los Angeles. And as background, J. Ryan was the senior story producer on the television series Deadliest Catch and Ice Road Truckers, and he was a supervising producer on IRT, The Deadliest Roads, Storage Wars, Storage Wars, Texas. There's undoubtedly some stories here that we want to ask about later. His first novel, novel, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, was published in July of 2015 and quickly rose to number 19 on the New York Times bestseller list in only three weeks. It won the American Booksellers Association Indies Choice Book of the Year Award, as well as several other notable honors. So now, let's dig in with a stolen line from Beth's website. Come on into the kitchen, for it's in the kitchen we're never alone. Please join me in welcoming Beth Dooley and J. Ryan Stradle. Um, first of all, thank you so much for coming. Um, 
thanks to the Friends of the Library, thanks to Wendy and Megan and uh, uh, Linnea and everyone else uh, who helped put this together. And I personally also want to thank uh, Beth so much for uh, being here with me every time I'm in Minnesota and I get to see her. It's a, such a treat. Um, I'll read first a little bit from my uh, debut novel, uh, Kitchens of the Great Midwest. It's the story of a young woman named Eva Torvald who grows up in the upper Midwest and becomes, uh, eventually becomes the chef behind a secretive and roving pop-up supper club. But she comes from a rather humble upbringing, living for a time in Iowa, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. And each chapter is based around a different ingredient. And all of those ingredients, except for one, get served in a meal in the final chapter. So I'll read a short uh, excerpt on uh, how Eva's parents met. Lars Torvald loved two women. That was it, he thought in passing, while he sat on the cold concrete steps of his apartment building. Perhaps one day he would have loved more than two, but it just didn't seem like things were going to work out like that. Now that morning, while defying a doctor's orders by pureeing a braised pork shoulder, he looked out the window at the snow on the roof of the Happy Chef restaurant across the highway. Yeah, there's still one of those somewhere, isn't there? <laughs> Near Albert Lee, maybe? Okay. Um, the, the snow on the roof of the Happy Chef restaurant across the highway and sang a love song to one of those two girls, his baby daughter, while she slept on the living room rug. He was singing a Beatles song, replacing the name of the girl in the tune with the name of the girl in the room. Now, uh, Lars hadn't told a woman, I love you, until he was 28. He didn't lose his virginity until he was 28 either. He did have his first kiss when he was 21, but that woman quit returning his calls about a week later. Now, Lars blamed his sorry luck with women on his lack of teenage romance. And he blamed his lack of teenage romance on the fact that he was the worst smelling kid in his grade. <laughs> yeah, every year he stank like the floor of a fish market every Christmas. And even when he didn't smell terrible, the other kids acted like he did because that's what kids do. Fish boy, they called him, year round. And it was all the fault of an old Swedish woman named Dorothy Seaborg. Now, on a December afternoon in 1974, Dorothy Seaborg of Duluth, Minnesota, slipped on the ice and broke her hip while walking to her mailbox, disrupting the supply line of Ludafisk for Sunday Advent dinners at St. Olaf's Lutheran Church. Now, Gustav Torvald, Lars's father, was one of the most conspicuous Norwegians between Cloquet and Two Harbors. And I just got to pause to say how grateful I am to be in a room who knows where those places are. <laughs> so, so that's actually pretty, pretty far. You know, like, people have no idea. Uh, thank you. One of the most conspicuous Norwegians between Cloquet and Two Harbors. He promised everyone in St. Olaf's Fellowship Hall that there would be no break in Ludafis continuity. His family would step in and carry on this brutal Scandinavian tradition for the benefit of the entire Twin Ports region. Now, never mind that neither Lars nor his wife Aline nor any of his three children had ever even seen a live whitefish before, much less caught one, pounded it, dried it in lye, re-soaked it in cold water, or done the careful cooking 
required to make something that, when perfectly prepared, looks like chilled smog <laughs> and smells like boiled aquarium water. Now, since everyone in the house was equally unqualified for the job, the work fell to Lars, age 12, and his younger brother, Jarl, age 10, skipping the youngest boy, Sigmund, age 8, but only because Sigmund actually liked the stuff. If Lars and Jarl don't eat any, their father said, it'll eliminate loss and breakage. <laughs> and um, well, Gustav was satisfied with that reasoning, Eileen still thought it was a mean thing to do to, do to their young sons. But she said nothing. Theirs was a mixed-race marriage between a Norwegian and a Dane. <laughs> so therefore, all things culturally important to one but not the other were given a free pass and critiqued only in unmixed company. <laughs> now, yearly intimate contact with their cultural heritage failed to evolve the Torvald boy's sensibilities. Jarl, who still ate his own snot, much preferred the taste of boogers to lutefisk, being that the color and consistency are the same. Now, Lars, meanwhile, was stumped by the old Scandinavian women who walked up to him in church and said, any young man who makes lutefisk like you is going to be quite a hit with the ladies. <laughs> now, in Lars's experience, lutefisk skills usually inspired revulsion or, at best, indifference among prospective dates. And by the time... Lars was 18, he had, unintentionally, he had unintentionally mastered this tragic hobby of ludifice preparation. And its potency was skyrocketing. Lutherans were driving from as far away as Fergus Falls <laughs> to eat the Torvald Ludifisk. And there wasn't an attractive young woman among any of them. Now, as if to mock him further every year, Lars's dad would shove a forkful of the crap in his face every Christmas. Just a bite, Gustav would say. Your ancestors ate this to survive the long winters. And how did they survive Ludafisk? Lars asked once. Take some pride in your work, son, Gustav said, and took away Lars's lefse in punishment. <laughs> now, in 1978, Lars graduated from high school and got the heck out of Duluth. So he moved down to the cities, looking for a girlfriend and kitchen work in whatever order, only insisting that neither one ask him to make lutefisk. <laughs> that attitude left a lot more options open than his dad predicted. <laughs> now, by October 1987, as his home state was enraptured by the twins winning their first World Series ever, the Lars had earned a job as a chef at Hotmockers, a trendy lakeside bistro that attracted big celebrities like meteorologists and state senators and local pro athletes. Amid the circumstance of this long-suffering sports team's success, the strange joy of it all spread through the restaurant. It was during these happy weeks when Cynthia Hargreaves, the smartest waitress on staff, she gave the best wine pairing advice of any of the servers. Uh, well, she seemed to take an interest in Lars. Lars, by this point, was already 28, already growing a pale, hairy inner tube around his waist, and already going bald. Now, Cynthia, even though she had an overbite and the shakes, she was six feet tall and beautiful, and not like a statue or a perfume advertisement, but in a realistic way, like how a truck or a pizza is beautiful at the moment you want it most. And this, to Lars, made her feel approachable.
right, thank you. Now a little from you, Beth, please. Yeah. That's awesome. Are you on? Am I on now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Awesome. Thank you. You know, um, before I start, I just want to give oh, yeah. a shout out to the Kirchner Library. And thank you so much for that reading. I mean, this book is so much fun to read. I found myself reading it to other people when we were sitting on the porch. In fact, one of my friends, before I met Jay Ryan, was reading it on our porch in Madeline Island and laughing hysterically. And huh. I grabbed it from her. Oh, so you. wonderful characters. Um, but I wanted to give a shout out to the Kirshner Library because, um, you know, in, in reference to whether or not cookbooks are scholarship, um, you know, I learned in anthropology that it's not the great works that make a culture often. It's the little things like um, what people eat and how they serve them. And I think I've learned so much about the world and culture, um, different parts of the universe through cookbooks. And I also have to give a shout out to this book, which is now out of print. But it's a cookbook that um, Lillian Hellman, of all people, wrote with Peter Feldeman. And it's a wonderful um, part memoir, part um, recipes. And what's so much fun about reading a cookbook is you get such insight into um, other people's lives. And what's fun about this book is that Peter tells the story of how Lillian would go about getting ready for a dinner party. Um, and of course, she you know, had a wonderful home on Shelter Island, and she would have all the New York literary come. And she'd send out an engraved invitation to Norman Mailer and to um, Dashiell Hammond and all these other people. And um, they would all get you know, chitter-chat about what Lillian was going to serve. And she would wake up every morning, Peter reports, because he was helping her out at that time. And she would wake up every morning a month before the party, and she would <coughs> write out a menu. And the next morning, she'd write out a different menu. And the day of the party, she would go down to the farmer's market. She'd shop like crazy without the menu. She'd come home, clean the house like a banshee, cook like a fiend, and then put her feet up with a martini and a cigarette and say, who the hell invited all these goddamn people anyway? <laughs> So that's in the book. So you know, you'll find out a lot about people's lives in cookbooks. Um, so I'm, I'll read just a little bit. You know, um, cookbooks, when I moved here, um, you know, I didn't know anybody. Um, I'd always loved reading cookbooks. And it was between the farmer's markets and the cookbooks that really helped me find my way home. Um, I was unpacking boxes in our apartment, and uh, my mother, I, I came across a, a copy of my mother's Joy of Cooking that she had slipped into one of the boxes as a surprise. Um, and it was a book that I'd used all through high school. It greeted me like an old friend. As a teenager, I tucked it into my bag, book bag to read like a novel when I should have been studying. All through college, when I felt lost or so homesick, I turned to cookbooks to soothe and to entertain. And cookbooks, too, had introduced me to, agriculturals, uh, to agriculture's environmental issues back when I had been a graduate student living in a shared house, cooking with friends. Diet for a Small Planet, the Moosewood cookbook, had been our Bibles of food awakening. Fueled by nicotine and cheap wine, we'd linger for hours at our table 
an old door propped on cinder block legs discussing farm issues and claiming the personal is political and talking over um, Cedar, Cesar Chavez's and workers' rights and Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and the dangers of Alar and DDT. So as I sat at the table my brother had built for our first Minneapolis kitchen, turning those sticky dog-eared pages, I began to feel more at home. For beneath a cookbook's list of ingredients and step to, steps to follow lie tales as rich and as deep as any to be found in fiction. They are forays into families' homes and glimpses into far-off lands, redolent of garlic and rosemary, saffron and cardamom. Recipes are stories with happy endings of being sated and cared for in a way that feels gentle. I'd even suggest that the intentions of a cookbook author are the same as those of a novelist, to use both cre creativity and format to transmit an experience to the reader. I'd revisited the old joy I realized I wanted to learn this language and to translate the sounds and scents and tastes of cooking onto the page, just as a composer writes out a score. I've always been happiest in the kitchen, chopping and sizzling and stirring and creating food that nourishes and delights. And so as a reader of cookbooks, I love the instructions that help me imagine a meal. I wanted to know how to document such steps to pleasure, how both to capture and to share them. And I hope such work would guide my search for the hearth and the heart of the home. Despite all my readings, however, I had never really stepped onto a farmer's field, and so when I went to the Minneapolis market, I could finally get the answers directly from the growers about what it takes to cultivate delicious bright green lettuce and why local varieties I used in my salad cost more than the pale heads sold in grocery stores, and I began to understand local food. Um, and as anybody who has experienced um, the farmer's markets and then gone off to source food directly from a farm or to go pick apples, um, it really connects you to the land in a, in a very specific and personal way. So I'll also just read a short part from the first chapter, Apples. Each of us has at least one fairy tree in our life, whether or not we remember. Mine was the apple tree in my childhood backyard. Its U-shaped trunk was a wild place for me to hide with Daisy, our gangly yellow lab. And when the blossoms burst open, we'd lounge in their fragrance, waiting for spirits to dust the flowers into ruby fruit. Later, I'd climb the branches to fill a pillowcase, and Daisy licked the apple sticky juice from my hands. Such a tree greeted me some 35 years later at the Western Wisconsin Farm Campus of the Land School, our son's Minneapolis Montessori School. Predating World War I, this tree reveals the place's history with a simplicity that would elude even the most gifted storyteller. The sturdy, gnarled survivor was the first thing I saw when I came up the hard back dirt drive. Its low branches were open and welcoming like a ready embrace. It blossoms splendidly and produces lady apples with yellowish skins and pretty red cheeks and a faint scent of strawberries and of rose. It's the variety of tree that grows especially well in this region, needing the long, cold winter to go dormant, and enough snow to both protect it from the overly harsh temperatures and when the weather warms to melt and provide the tree with moisture. At harvest time, our young sons would joyfully wriggle up into the branches for this distinctly sweet, tart, ping-pong ball-sized fruit, and then they'd drop with a soft thud and chase each other across the fields. Picking apples is a quiet and absorbing task. You're centered on a thin limb, 
stretching on tiptoe into the leaves seeking balance. It seems the most prized apples are always the hardest to grasp. Cradled amidst the scent of ripe and rotting apples, you gain perspective on the earth's daily spin from a sweet, safe perch. A good apple, taste of September sun, the warm waning light of its lineage, of the weather, the soil, and the way it was tended. All this is to say that a good apple is the taste of balance, a range of natural acids and sugars with notes so complex and different they come on in waves of flavor with each bite. When cooked, a good apple may lose some of its subtlety, that hint of raspberries or rose or pepper or sage, while the essential character, the sharp and the sweet, becomes more intense. The variety of fruit and how and where it was grown informs the apple, just as the experience of the eater have everything to do with how its taste is received. So I doubt that I'd love apples so very much if I never climbed into those trees as a child. Um, and then, you know, when your favorite tree gives you too many apples, you make applesauce, right? Or apple pies or things like that. And picking apples is mesmerizing and getting our sons to come down from the tree to head home was a challenge. The truckload of fruit filled the car with a sense of sweet um, grass and of decay. Back in our kitchen, our oldest son, the most cautious one, sliced the apples, and then the youngest one, who took this work very seriously, cut them into smaller pieces, and then the least patient one, the middle son, of course, would pitch them into a pot from far away. <laughs> <laughs> On the stove, the sauce burbled its cinnamon comfort, um, and they'd take turns stirring the sauce, jumping up and down. One indigo evening, just as we returned from the orchard, my father called to say he'd landed in town and hoped it wouldn't be an imposition to spend the night. Because he was an amateur pilot, it wasn't odd for him to fly cross-country, earning air miles, but he never arrived unannounced. That night, he entered the kitchen subdued and wearied. What had motivated this trip, and why was he so downtrodden? A spat with my mother, a business setback, but I was distracted you know, by homework and three little kids and dinner and baths and applesauce, so I never really asked. But what I recall now is how, as he sat at the table, he relaxed in the glow of a glass of scotch and seemingly was soothed by the boys who scrambled up on his lap and hopped down to stir the sauce. The kitchen filled with good smells while he shared stories of his war years on an escort ship in the Pacific and then of bumming around through Alsace, which also happened to be our ancestral home. The other day, our now 25-year-old son invited me over for dinner, and as I tripped over the bushel of apples in his doorway, it wasn't hard for me to discern that he needed my help making applesauce and apple butter. And as we peeled and sliced, I realized that apples embody the endless qualities of motherhood, of risk and comfort and promise. Cooking in my son's kitchen, I was knocked back into the presence of my father and of our boys in the trees and into the moments of reckless joy, balancing on branches myself. Some say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but as our sons mature, I watch myself becoming the child of my children, just as my father sought parental comfort from me. I witnessed my son's journey into adulthood. I vicariously experienced their delights and disappointments a privilege and a curse. I seem to grow older and younger at once as the child I was, the mother I used to be, and the grandmother I hope to become 
collapse together. So thanks. So Beth, it's hard to believe that that book came out about a year ago. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how uh, how and uh, how things have changed since your book come out? And yeah, I'd love to hear about. Yeah, you're you're nice to ask, and and yeah. you do some of this in your book as well. You talk about. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice to do that. Now I'm gonna pop into my left hand and cover it with my right hand. It's the ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but Wendy alluded to how, you know, food has really exploded in our consciousness. Um, and what I find um, sort of encouraging is how interested people have become in local food. And not as much as in, um, you know, what's hot and what the trends are in local food, but also in um, how food is grown, where it's coming from, and why we should care. And... Uh, you know, it's, it, I think, I really, and I, and I don't want to get too preachy about this, but I really do think that, that food has become the most important issue of our time um, because it touches everything. It touches how we relate to each other. It touches um, nutrition. It touches social equity. It, um, it certainly, um, you know, is all the concerns around our environment have to do with how food is grown and how it comes to us. And so I think, you know, there's, everyone comes into all of these issues in a different way. Some people come into it because they want really good food and they know that by going to the farmer's market or joining a CSA, they're going to get the most flavorful food. Other people come to it because their doctors told them that they need to cut back on fats and salts and sugars and processed foods, and so they begin using more fresh food. Other people come into it because they're concerned about the environment. So I think, you know, for all of these reasons, people are paying more and more attention to local food. And I mean, you must see that all the time as well when you come back, because you come back and forth. And things yeah. have changed so much. You know, your book sort of covers that, too. Yeah. Uh, in creating my character, Eva Torvald, I really wanted to create a character that was you know, born in the Minnesota I was born into. I was born in 1975. And the food environment was very different then than it mm -hmm. is now. Uh, even a lot of the restaurants, and I was just talking to an audience member, Phoebe, about this. Many of the restaurants I mentioned in my book that were the fancy restaurants of the early mm -hmm. 80s are all gone. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, mm -hmm. like, like this city doesn't even have really a, like those same kinds of institutions as much. But I think that has a lot to do with how our relationship with food has evolved. Mm -hmm. And I wanted Eva to typify that, you know, being born in the 80s and you know, growing up in uh, you know, places like River Falls, Wisconsin and Des Moines, Iowa, where she had access to a variety of food but maybe wasn't exposed to it by the people that raised her. Um, and then becomes a chef behind a pop-up supper club. I couldn't think of anything more modern than that at the time <laughs> I wrote it. I thought, and, I, and plus I thought, I, I want to create this roving pop-up supper club. There's never in a fixed location, and it's going to charge $1,000 per course. I thought, this is ludicrous. But in <laughs> retrospect, it seems like historical fiction. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think there are people charging quite that much yet. Or if there are, I haven't heard of it. There are people come close, certainly. I've heard of four figures for meals. But, and I've heard of roving pop-up supper clubs as well. But I didn't know those things existed. Uh, when I wrote the book. In fact, when I wrote the book, I, when Eva's 11, 
she's hydroponically growing hot peppers in her closet in <laughs> Iowa. You know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, my dad who's here in the audience so he was can, can occasionally grow like serranos and jalapenos in St. Cloud. But I think if you want to grow like a really hot pepper like she's growing, I think you've got to do it indoors uh, above a certain USDA hardiness zone. And I thought, there's got to be kids like this, right? Like in the world, there's got to be these young foodies that are just nuts about this. This is before any TV shows devoted to this existed. I just surmised that I was a weird little kid myself, <laughs> absolutely bedeviled by strange obsessions and driven, by, uh, driven passionately into all of them, uh, that I thought, well, boy, there's got to be someone who was, you know, is uh, or could be as into food as I was into the things I was into when I was a child. And um, the character and her passions and, uh, evolved from that. And that became, of course, a kind of a, uh, what's, a what's a good analogy, like a, like a net for um, ways in which food has influenced people and have evolved in this region. Mm -hmm. And what's, what I love about Eva, though, um, is that she, she, really, she has this wonderful big heart and this terrific welcoming personality that, to me, sort of embodies Midwestern hospitality. Um, and, and I can say this, having grown up on the East Coast, that um, there is something really special about this region. Um, and I think it has to do with the fact that are, we really still live in, in an agricultural culture. You know, um, the, we are so incredibly impacted by the weather. Um, you don't, you know, even if you go from your heated garage to your heated parking ramp to your heated office and never step a foot outside, you know, walk through the skyways for lunch or whatever, um, you still don't want to have a salad in the middle of, of February. You know, you want a big bowl of soup or something really warm to eat. It really affects our appetites. And I also think if you scratch a Minnesotan, you'll find a farmer underneath, usually a couple, you know, one or two generations back. And, um, and because of the impact of the weather and because of, um, you know, this sort of agricultural tradition, we help each other out in ways that I don't think you see in the rest of the country. And that may also have, have to do with, you know, and you reference this too in your book, the, um, the people that settled here first were Scandinavians. And they're the ones that, that started the credit unions. I think that's why our co-op movement has been so strong. Um, and a lot of the farmers pushed back early on against the use of um, chemicals. A lot of the farmers down in the Driftless area, which is where the glaciers weren't able to flatten out the land, mm. um, they, they never got into monoculture. They continued to farm um, using sustainable practices, which eventually became called organic. Um, and they were the first farms to supply uh, the people's pantry, which became um, one of the first co-ops in the country. Mm. And so, you know, we have this, this tradition. We have this very collaborative culture, I think, anyway. And, and, you know, in a really nice way, Eva kind of embodies that in her, you know, constantly wanting to gather people and feed people and, and, um, and just sort of push food forward as well. And I think, you know, it's interesting, too, because a lot of things that are going on here in our region um, are informing the rest of the country um, in terms of food, both in terms of, of the research that's being done at the University of Minnesota, for instance, by Don Weiss and some of the other um, 
soil re researchers and scientists on um, perennial wheats and on heritage grains and things like that are all coming out of Minnesota. So it's, it's cool. Yeah, and, and so who did you have? You must have had somebody in mind when you came up with Eva, right? Oh, wow, I had a few people. Yeah. Uh, one of whom is a Minnesotan chef. Her name's uh, Amy Shabert Kovacs, and she worked, um, well, she's worked at a number of restaurants and bakeries around uh, Minneapolis. Uh, she works at the Lowbrow right now. Mm -hmm. But I met her in high school before she was a chef at all, before she got a degree in um, what is it? Nutrition. Yeah. And so I saw her evolution as a person and as a chef. I've seen it for, you know, uh, I'll say I've seen it for 35 years. I, I don't want to age her. Uh, or, or 25 years. 25 years. Um, so uh, that said, I, yeah, she was a big influence because every time I'd come back, I usually stay with her at least one night, stay with her and her husband. And um, I see her cooking you know, at night and in the morning, and I've seen how the ingredients she used has evolved, and also as a baker, how her job has evolved. When she got her degree, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago, uh, she wasn't asked to make gluten-free desserts, mm -hmm. you know? She mm -hmm. wasn't expected to make vegan birthday cake. And, and these are some of the contortions that she's had to be agile enough to evolve with. Yet at the same time, I mean, she, still really loves making, you know, what we would consider to be, you know, traditional Midwestern yeah, food yeah, and desserts. And it's yeah. so much fun to hang out in her kitchen yeah. and talk with her about what's going on. Like how are things changing? How are things changing for you? What are what are people buying? Yeah. What are they not buying anymore? Yeah. 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 Well, you know, and it's interesting too to take that a step further. We're seeing all of these um, food entrepreneurs and they're being supported by um, a number of incubator kitchens, their commercial kitchens mm. that people can lease space out in. And it's been great for the local food movement because the entrepreneurs are buying local products. They're buying carrots or tomatoes or whatever it happens to, to be. They're you know, making pickled carrots or they're making um, tomato sauce or they're, uh, there's a, the food building down on um, Marshall and 13th where the baker who used to be with Rustica is now milling and baking um, bread from Heritage Flour, and it's all it's mm. beautiful bread. It's all sourdough bread, and then there's a, a creamery there um, that's making cheeses, single source cheese, and it's called Lone Grazer, and it's all mm. organic. It's beautiful cheeses, and he came from the Faribault, um, not uh, yeah, from the the Faribault, um, caves. Um, and it was the cheesemaker there. Oh wow! Yeah, cool. yeah, and the cheese is gorgeous. And then, um, and then there's Red Table Meats, which has won all kinds of awards for using the old Italian style to cure pork sausages and mm. salamis and things like that. And so we're seeing a lot of these uh, traditional artisan foodways coming back, but they're doing it um, at scale so that they're supporting the farmers. I mean, the guy who's making red table meats is now keeping two hog farms going. Mm. And these farms were in danger of going under. So, you wow. know, it's, it's, you know there's, there's this whole kind of, there's an interest on the consumer part, and then the market's responding to it in a, in a pretty interesting, fun way. And um, so it's, I mean, I've seen, we've, we've both seen those changes um, since we've been here. I mean, it's a far cry from, 
I don't know, you're probably not old enough to remember Be Becky's Cafeteria. Did you ever have to go there? Oh, I don't, <laughs> remember, I don't remember Becky's. It's your dad. I bet your dad remembers Becky's Cafeteria. Oh, yeah. It was great. I mean, yeah. you walked in, and it was a, there were velvet curtains, and uh -huh. um, there was kind of organ music playing. And at the host stand, when you walked in, the Bible was open to, like, Jeremiah, you know, 451 or something. It was, it was um, wow. a jello salad and fried chicken and mashed potatoes and things. Um, so, yeah, we've come a long way since then. Yeah. One of the things I'm writing about my next book is beer. Cool. So it's been a lot of fun to research that. Uh, whenever I come back here, I try to uh, try something new. Uh, and it's really hard to keep up. Yeah. I had to look up these numbers. In 2011, at the end of 2011, there were 35 craft breweries in Minnesota. Now there are 105. Yeah. And in 1978, nationally, there were 89 breweries nationally in 1978. Now there are 4,269. I talked to uh, someone in Washington State who is a supplier to breweries. And he said, if you want to start a business that's not going to go out of business, start a brewery. Hmm. He said they have a very low failure rate. Some do fail, but he said, that's a remarkably difficult job to screw up. <laughs> because he said, people want beer. It's typically not very expensive. And, yeah. and he also seemed to discern, he, he said, the closest brewery to me, five miles away, is terrible. And people still buy it. <laughs> it's like it's one product that you don't have to be that good at to, to have people drink it. Now, I, that's obviously going to shake out. I mean, over time, I don't know if the brewery he's discussing is going to survive 30 years. Uh, it, it, they could if they get better, perhaps. But what he was saying is that there's room for everybody yeah. in this industry. And it's fun to see. Even in my hometown, they're starting a brewery in Hastings. I think in the old um, Hudson Sprayer building, right by where Highway 61 enters Hastings. Um, and I was just thinking that uh, last year. I was literally there last summer, and I was looking at that old warehouse and going, you know, if this were Brooklyn, there'd be a brewery. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, what do you know? Um, so I think it's just great. I think that's a really, really cool thing to see evolve as part of the evolution in food. Uh, also, because in a state like this, there's, you know, now with the hops farms starting to evolve in the state as well, there's, you know, we're going to start seeing more and more Minnesota beer that's completely grain to bottle, 100% mm -hmm. uh, Minnesotan. Because mm -hmm. certainly mm -hmm. they're able to do that in a lot of other places. I mean, we certainly have some distilleries in the state that already do that, that are, that are really wonderful. But it, it'll be really great as the hops farms get their legs under them that they'll be supplying more breweries and we'll have more. 100% Minnesota beer. Yeah, it's cool. It's fabulous. And on top of that, uh, you know, cider is kind of the next oh, yeah, beer. Yeah. You know, um, so and the, the wonderful thing about all of these hard cider places that are opening is that it, it's creating more diversity in our apple orchards because cider apples are different than the sweet apples we're used to eating out of hand. In fact, they're called spitters because mm. you, you know, take a bite and they're loaded with tannins, but that's what makes mm. the cider interesting. Right, and so right. you, you get a balance between the sweet and the tannic flavors, and that's what makes a good cider. And cider actually was um, what people drank instead of water when they first moved here, because water could be dangerous. Right. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, and they would, they would uh, use the milk to make cheese, and milk, because milk spoiled so quickly, so they'd use the milk to make butter and cheese. Um, and they would give cider to their kids as well because it was the cleanest thing they could drink. So we're seeing a lot of cideries come back, and it's been great for the apple industry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, 
what else have you seen evolve in the last uh, five years or in the last year or two? Yeah, yet? well, there's you know been an explosion in the farmers markets, and mm. there's also been an explosion in different. Um, Again, different ways of marketing food. So we're seeing a lot more CSAs, mm. winter um, CSAs, where people might subscribe to both a summer. Everybody's familiar with CSAs, right? Community-supported agriculture, where you pay in advance for a season's worth of um, fruits and vegetables from a particular farm. A lot of the farmers are now offering year-long CSAs, mm. and they're also offering um, meat CSAs or mm. cheese CSAs, so you can get whatever um, product you want by paying for it in advance and it's been great for the farmers because <laughs> they then get a year's worth of um, or they get their their money up front rather than take having to take the risk and the as an eat what I love about CSAs is as a um, as a cook I have to respond to whatever I get in the box right, so right, right, you know rather right. than marching into the store into the farmers market with my list um, I have to respond to whatever's there, and so if it's all kohlrabi, you got to deal with all kohlrabi, right? Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you have to learn to be creative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus so, uh, yeah, excellent. yeah, yeah. Um, like when you come back to Minnesota, what do you seek out? What do you what oh, What wow. do you miss? Yeah. Wow, uh, there's a lot of well. One of the things that I'm going to get to have on this trip that I don't always get to have is venison. Nice. Yeah, my dad was successful this season. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, and so it was really great to uh, come back to a state. You know, grew up in a hunting family. Uh, in fact, I've, I'm the, I think the, I'm the only male on my dad's side of the family that's never hunted. And there's quite a few. My dad is one of nine siblings, so do the math. Yeah, I, yeah and, and you know, that said, I, you know, I just never got around to it. I was never opposed to it. But I, I always like to use that first weekend of November day hang out at home and read. Um, <laughs> you know, I was that, I was that kid, you know, I still am. That said, I love venison and I had absolutely no problem with my dad hanging the bleeding deer in the garage. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's fun to come back this time of year because that's one of the things that I consider to be, you know, even though venison, obviously, you know, you can have any time of year and it's, and as I kind of point out in my book, it's one of those foods that's not necessarily better fresh, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but that said, I, I, I do associate it with fall and I associate it with this time of year and it's fun to come back and have something like that that was also part of our family tradition and part of the family and uh, uh, put on my table specifically, you know, uh, woods to fork from a family member. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think all of that game is coming back. And so in our meat markets, even, we're seeing not wild, but um, farm-raised pheasant and rabbit. We're seeing a lot more rabbit now, mm. um, and venison, and elk. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm actually working on a cookbook right now with um, a guy that goes by the name The Sioux Chef, S-I-O-U-S. Oh, yeah. Chef, yeah. yeah. And it's really interesting. It's pre-colonial Native American food. Wow. So he's, he's peeled back you know, all of the European influence on his culture and um, taking a hard look at what people ate before the Europeans arrived. Um, and so he's, I, I think what, what will be really interesting for people as they begin to explore some of his recipes is how much food is available to us right outside our back door in really interesting ways. Mm -hmm. So he will um, uh, simmer wild rice with a branch of cedar, for instance, and it gives it a wonderful flavor. Wow. Um, yeah, and he'll use juniper to, um, to season, you know, an elk steak or something or a venison steak. So, um, it's, again, I think, I think what we're seeing are 
people beginning to begin to explore all of these other um, cultures, you know, and, and just kind of bring them into a contemporary kitchen in, in fascinating ways. I've learned a lot about that culture just by working with them. Yeah. That said, have you also seen a boom in foraging and more outlets yes. for foragers? Yeah, yeah. And it's, again, it's wonderful. And uh, Therese Marone, who's a um, local food writer, has a couple of books out about foraging, about how to find um, you know, sor wild sorrel along the edge of a highway or mm. um, where, where the best watercress is, and along with morels, of course, and the different mushrooms. Um, you know, there are wild berries all over the place. There are um, elderberries in, you know, I mean, I know right where they are along Cedar Lake, so things like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's fun. I mean, more and more people are getting into that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and right now, uh, what would you consider to be like a, a, like a can't-miss market or a restaurant or cafe? Oh, wow, that's a great question. You know, like you, like you said about breweries, it's changing all the time. Um, there is, uh, there's the Mung Market um, over on the corner of St. Paul mm. um, that has really interesting things and, and most of the people speak English. Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, the Indian Spice Market which has some wonderful spices. Wow. Yeah, and, and it's just called the Indian Spice Market. And then, you know, it's uh, the farm to table thing and the, um, the uh, you know, nose to tail cooking has has sort of forced a lot of chefs to do, to return to some of the um, heritage way of preparing foods. For instance, if you go to Bachelor Farmer, um, Chef Paul uses as a, a base for a lot of his sauces and for some of his soups what they call old water. But it's really, I know it sounds weird, doesn't mm. it? But it's really just a method of continuing to simmer down um, bones and, um, in the basic stock, you know, mm. like, like chefs always have, mm -hmm. but they, he puts everything in there. He puts smoked ham bones in there. He puts, um, you know, wild game bones in there. And, so, and what you end up with is this really rich but very clear um, broth that he then uses as a base for a, a lot of his um, different sauces and soups. And it's fabulous, but, but what has to happen is that it is, you know, simmered for such a long time. Um, mm. There's you know, we're seeing an explosion in, um, as people get more interested in, for instance, uh, um, Somali cooking, we're beginning to see some of the Somali restaurants open up and different, um, you know, chefs beginning to adapt some of those things. There's a lot of crossover. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's, it's exciting. I mean, there, it's, you can't swing a cat almost without hitting another coffee shop or, um, you know, brewery or, uh, you know, somebody doing something interesting. We're seeing a lot of fermented foods. There's a mm. wonderful little place called Gist, G-Y-S-T, which is, um, you know, kimchi and sauerkrauts and pickled things and then really interesting cheeses and different wines and stuff. And it's, they have both a tasting bar and a, um, a little sort of cafe area as well as selling a lot of their um, kombucha and things like that. So there's, the, and then, um, oh, uh, dried foods. Um, mm. You know, jerkies and pemmican and things like that are coming back. So, oh, that's so cool. yeah, it's really cool. It's really interesting. So, and a lot of people are working hard to do more things off the grid. Mm -hmm. So, um, in terms of, of both being careful about using, about not having a lot of waste, 
about mm -hmm. using the entire animal, you know, cooking things down to make broths and things like that, drying things to preserve them, and then fermenting things are all old ways of preserving food, but they, they put to use what you might not use in a meal. So, yeah. There's an um, organization in Los Angeles called Food Forward mm -hmm. that uh, takes uh, unsold food from farmers markets and sometimes from agriculture directly. Yeah. And um, uses it to uh, make food that they donate to homeless shelters and mm -hmm. so on. So, there's an organization like that here as well. Or? There is. We've got um, Second Harvest is one, okay. and then um, so a lot of the food shelves will accept um, seconds and things like that. What's been great is the uh, Minneapolis Public Schools, and I think the St. Paul's Public Schools are starting to do this now. Is they're contracting with farmers to buy their seconds. Mm. So it's the you know imperfect tomatoes and the um, apples and things, and some of the farmers markets are doing that as well. Um, but they'll also, they'll um, turn that food, you know, into, there's the, Minneapolis Public Schools has done a phenomenal job of cooking from scratch. Mm. Um, they have a big commissary where they prepare a lot of the food and ship it out to the schools, but it's prepared fresh. And then they also are putting kitchens into a number of their schools. So scratch cooking is coming back oh, in the schools so cool. as well. It's been great. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot of that stuff going on too. It's, again, I, we're, we're pretty progressive when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, should yeah. we, do you think we should open it to questions from the audience? I think we better, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, yes, sir. Um, there was an interesting article in the paper, I think it was today, where a large food company in uh, the Twin Cities that has a director of sustainability mm -hmm. uh, decided to partner. Uh, a large food company decided to partner with other nonprofits. Uh, in the area of pollinization, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. probably in the upper Midwest. Mm -hmm. So the idea of sustainability, um, could you talk a little bit about that? You know, that's going to involve where water comes from, mm -hmm. climate change, mm -hmm. population movement, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. probably uh, areas of strife where people don't have a lot of food. Mm -hmm. And uh, so sustainability is my question. And also, uh, could you talk about uh, small providers of food and large providers of food and how they can interact together? Yeah, yeah those are really broad questions. Um, and they're great questions. And they really address you know, the whole issue of food. Um, you know, actually, I, I, have a, I have a couple of answers, if you can bear with me. Um, both the Food Council for the city of Minneapolis, and the um, it's called the Food and Nutrition Council in St. Paul, are working with both the park mm -hmm. system as well as with um, as well in, on city land to uh, make sure that they're pollinator friendly, so that they're requiring that um, they use uh, plants that don't have any neonicotides in them, um, and they're trying to encourage homeowners to do the same thing. Um, and so what we're going to see in the next couple years is um, soccer fields that may have clover on them instead of, you know, beautiful grasses and things. Um, and I think that's great. Um, the, it's, it's so interesting because our legislature almost passed a law um, forbidding farms to use neonicotides in very pollinator-sensitive areas, and then that was reversed. Um, so that, you know, we're going to keep pushing to make that happen again. Um, it's, it's gotten very difficult for a lot of the cranberry farmers to get enough bees to pollinate their cranberry plants. They have to bring them in. 
um, and pollinator, or sorry, um, yeah, pollinator collapse disorder has been a big problem because of the neonicotides. So they're working on how to reverse that. There's a lot of work being done by the Bee Institute, which is um, Marla Spivak at the University of Minnesota, and that's a great website, and they have a lot of information about um, things that, that we can do to help support that work both at the university and at the legislature and in our cities. So um, that's one answer to the bee thing. Um, you know, in terms of the small farms and the large farms and how they're working together, uh, I don't know if you saw this um, article in today's New York, in today's um, Strib about Jack Hedeen. He is the farmer at Featherstone Farm, which is a phenomenal, um, an amazing um, organic farm. It supplies, it did until this year, supply practically all the, the um, organic carrots to our co-ops and to Whole Foods as well as to the Whole Foods in Chicago. And he suffered one of the worst um, seasons he's ever had. He lost $450,000 worth of crop. Um, and it's going to be really hard for him to come back from that. He did a big You Fund Me campaign. It's, I think it might still be open if people want to go on his website. But um, it was really devastating. And I think, you know, Again, I don't want to get it too far into politics, but I think I'm hoping one of the things that happens with this awareness around local food is that we begin to um, call our politicians um, to be to become more responsive to these issues. Um, you know, it wasn't too long ago; it was back in the 19 uh, late 50s, um, as far as the 50s or even mid 60s, when every presidential candidate addressed farm issues, you know, that that was a big lobby. And we're not seeing that so much anymore, mostly because we have two kinds of farms now. We have the corporate farms, and then we have, and they have a very huge lobbying presence. And then we have the smaller organic farms, which don't have the money to lobby. And so I really think it's, um, it's important for us to understand what these issues are and to ask about whether or not we're going to enforce things like border strips on farms that help prevent runoff into the Mississippi, and whether we're going to call into question the use of neonicotides that, that damage our pollinators, things like that. Um, glyphosate, which is the chemical in, in um, Roundup. I mean, these are questions that we can ask our politicians because certainly we have the leverage to, to begin to ask them that and also to support the people that are using best practices. What's interesting to me as well is that um, back in the 1970s, bef there, before um, corporate agriculture became as big a presence it is, as it is now, there was parity between the large organic farms and the farms that use chemicals. And um, what happened really was that uh, um, Earl Butts, um, who was pressured by the uh, chemical companies and some of the large seed companies, um, began to say things like, when you hear the word organic, think starvation. And he then had, and the USDA did a white paper study into whether or not organic practices were as effective as our um, using chemicals. And they found that, yes, in many cases they were. They studied 20,000 farms, and they did a white paper on it that was um, you know, released to the extension agents that used it. When that paper went out of print, Butts had the word organic struck from 
all the USDA materials until the early 70s when there was sort of, you know, some of the organic farmers began to become aware of that and um, require that that be reinstated. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too dark, but I do think that, you know, if we care about food, we need to care about these kinds of issues. So thank you for asking that question. Thank you for your comments. Yeah, thanks. More questions? I um, saw in the Trib that General Mills was buying or contracting with Organic Valley mm -hmm. for milk products. Do you have some concerns about those types of partnerships? You know, um, I, I actually, I think General Mills is making some smart moves. Um, they just uh, started an initiative with um, the Nature Conservancy around soil health because they're recognizing that soil health is going to be one of the big issues in the future. And so with the Nature Conservancy, they're beginning to come up with some guidelines that they'd like the farmers that they contract with to follow. And that, frankly, is in response to the, um, the pressure that consumers are putting General Mills under. So we have a lot of power. We have the power of the purse. In terms of Organic Valley, that is a um, farmer-run board. So I trust that the farmers are, are pretty wary of the kinds of contracts they get into. And the reason why I'm saying that is because they refuse to contract with um, Kmart and with Walmart and another big box store. In fact, I think Target might have been one of them because they understood that they could get into a contract with those companies, but then all of their product would be um, you know, taken up going to these big box stores and the smaller retailers and the co-ops wouldn't have access to their um, organic milk. So I, I think because I, I've you know, applauded what Organic Valley has done in the past, and because that farmer board is, um, has a history of being really responsible to their members and, um, and to their retailers, that they're probably doing it with caution. Um, you know, Organic Valley was, was formed after that first farm crisis because those farmers were in such bad shape. They thought, we've got to do something and work together, or we're all going to go under. And um, so they have a history of, of best practices. Yeah. organically certified, you have to let your field go fallow for three years. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that um, this cooperative is getting is getting um, supported by General Mills for the three years that they can't make any money mm -hmm. as an organic farm. Mm -hmm. So, okay, it's big egg, true, but they're all, like you said, they're taking a supportive role. Right, right. Yeah, and it's you know that's that's another thing to be aware of is that um, is that when those are, when those um, farms are transitioning into organic in in Europe, for instance, there are tax breaks for conventional farms that are going to tr transition to organic, so that they can wait that period out without suffering too much. Um, yeah. Question. Yeah. I'm not going to put you on the spot anymore, Beth. I'm going to shift it to Jay Ryan. Good. Excellent. Good. <laughs> 
Um, so I'm going to bring you back to your chat about beer earlier. Yeah. You were saying how, you know, there's there's plenty of uh, breweries. It's a safe industry to enter into no matter what level of experience you have in brewing. That's what um, one brewery a supplier told me anyway. <laughs> yeah, and that that's, you know, plenty of, of course, our perceptions it's, it's, as and well. And of course, his, it's, it's his incentive to believe that, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to me when there's a food business like beer, I consider that in the, the food industry, um, that has a model that's set up to succeed no matter what the level of experience or skill is inherent in that brewer, but yet we have farmers with the opposite kind of experience. So you have very skilled, experienced farmers who are finding themselves in the system that is set up to fail them. Mm. So could you talk a little bit about what you have been finding in your research about the culture around beer that has made that so successful and any parallels you might see between beer and the farming world or I guess the opposite of parallels? Well, what's one of the things interesting about beer is that a lot of states, counties, uh, cities have blue laws that restrict the like amount of beer someone can you know, uh, distribute. Uh, and so some of the restrictions put on small breweries I think have actually in, in some parts of the country, have actually helped them in a sense, like kind of get better before they get big. Um, there's also a huge home brewing community. It doesn't take a lot of money to start, you know, uh, and it doesn't take a lot of time. Like this isn't like wine growing. I have some friends who are attempting to mm -hmm. bottle wine. It, I think it's taken them five years before they were able to bottle a wine that they would consider sellable, and even then, they feel like this isn't that, this isn't that good. Like it's still <laughs> going to take some time for it to be better. Uh, it's yeah, just because of the nature of beer making, um, you know, it's it doesn't get better with age. You know, most of <laughs> the vast majority. There are whole varieties of beer that are very trendy now that that are extremely local, like um, like sour beers. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, it, it's it's just a particular type of of expression of food and beverage that to me is um, I don't know very very conducive to beginners because of a relatively low entrance um, uh, bar uh, economically like uh, low turn relatively low turnaround time and um, and people in, and, and and people being vastly interested in it um, I mean one of the things that underscores the fact that there were only 89 breweries in 1978 is that an awful lot of them weren't very good then either, you know, uh, or, or they were very similar to each other. It's really like, I mean, I'm not that old. I, I guess I'm not that old. I'm old enough. I'm old enough to remember that when I became old enough to buy beer, there sure wasn't the variety there was now. And, and it sure felt like, oh, you're just buying different versions of the same thing. Uh, and that really isn't true anymore. It's, it's, it's evolved in, in a way that just feels phenomenally dilated to me. And I think it'll continue to, uh, it's a community that likes to challenge uh, each other and challenge itself internally. One of the things that they've also done, I think, to um, embolden it from within and give it a sense of um, nobility is that they've reconstituted, maybe that's not quite the right verb, they've, um, they I'll just go with it. They reconstituted <laughs> the, uh, the noun Cicerone, yeah, you know, which was yeah. not a term originally used to describe uh, um, beer sommeliers, but one that is now universally described 
uh, thusly. Uh, so that said, there are now places where you can go to study beer. There are, there's, um, there, 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 there's becoming, there, there's uh, developing, evolving a, uh, like a hierarchical structure of beer knowledge in some areas. But there's also, I don't know, I, I mean, I see this all through different types of agricultural communities. It's tremendously, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is tremendously internally supportive. That the, there really is a, like a community. Like these brewers know each other, they support each other. You go to one brewery, they'll say like, hey, you like this beer, go 30 miles up the road, there's this other brewery, you'll love them too. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that helps too. Um, I, I, in any case, I hope that answers your question. Uh, I feel like rambling a bit here, but um, yeah, I hope that helps. I mean, that's what I see when I look at why, th why this community is so successful so quickly. Uh, yes, sir. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was kind of surprised to hear that uh, it's cheap to start, a, start brewing beer. Well, it can be. When you walk into these brew pubs <laughs> with these huge rooms full of yeah. big tanks, sure. that can't be that cheap. Well, no, that kind of material isn't. <laughs> yeah. But I, mean, but I mean to just be able to start making drinkable beer. I'm yeah. talking about like, you could, you could do it for a few hundred dollars. You know, it's like, it's like you could make beer that people would buy. And there aren't a lot of industries, you know, like, you know, where, where food goes through some kind of process, of which that is true. I mean, maybe, you know, I suppose distilled beverages, sure, as well. You know, vodka, perhaps in particular. But, but with beer, it's like, no, I mean, obviously we're talking small production here. But you can get competent at it and be able to sell your work that, I don't know, at a relatively low overhead. Relatively, I'm saying, yeah. But yeah, thanks. I appreciate the addendum to that because, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's certainly not free. I mean, like, you know, hops don't grow in your backyard, you know, unless you really want them there. <laughs> On the beer thing, I heard that we had hundreds of breweries in Minnesota in the yeah. 19th century. Oh, in the 19th century? Well, I don't know when well, it was. It was a long time ago, anyway. Oh, yeah. Anyway, that's not my question. I want to change the subject totally. Um, <laughs> I'm not um, I'm really a cookbook reader, but I am a big collection of cookbooks. But what I am interested in is sort of the memoirs, cooking memoirs, the, one, uh, the ones of Julia Childs and some of, of uh, what's her name, M.F. Emma Fisher. 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 Oh, yeah, yeah. Fisher. But I was wondering, do you have any um, recommendations yes. of I think cookbook my, memoirs? Yeah, I think my favorites are by Lori Colwin, C-O-L-W-I-N. She was a short story writer, and she wrote for, she had uh, a number of her stories published in The New Yorker, but she also was a columnist for um, Gourmet Magazine. Wonderful, wonderful writer. Lori Colwin. She has two, two collections out. One is called Home Cooking, and the other one is called More Home Cooking. And then um, the, it's, more, it's more recipe. It's not quite as much memoir, but they're beautifully written. There are two books by um, Nigel Slater. He's a British author. One is called Ripe, and the other is called Tender. And they're abs the photos are absolutely gorgeous, but the, um, the way he writes is really compelling. And it, it, um, in both of those books, each chapter deals with a particular item, so it's, you know, apples and berries and stuff like that. But he writes, he's also an incredible gardener, so he writes about um, gardening and cooking, but there's a lot of memory and history 
woven into um, the introductions to his, to his recipes for each of the items that he's writing about. And they're beautifully written. So yeah, those would be, those are my four favorite. Yeah. Yes. Do you have some? How about you? Oh wow, I love MFT Fisher. I'm really yeah. glad you brought her up. Yeah. Yeah, uh, she might be my favorite. In a way, she's sort of the original food writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I read a lot of fiction that has food elements in it. Mm -hmm. Well, um, there's, uh, there's an author named Amelia Gray, who I'm gonna feature um, in February. I'm starting a job as a uh, the fiction editor at a new food magazine called Taste. Mm. So I'm gonna be publishing all food-related fiction. So if any of you are fiction writers uh, and like to write about food, please send me something. So yeah, Amelia Gray is someone that comes to mind. I mean, she, does, she hasn't really written a book explicitly about food, but I love the way she writes about food when she does. There's a writer named Rachel Kong. She used to be the managing editor at Lucky Peach. Mm -hmm. She uh, is having a book come out called Goodbye Vitamin. I think she's an excellent food writer and a fiction writer. So those are the first two that come to mind, are Rachel and Amelia. They're the first two people I reached out to when I was given this job, like, find fiction writers who write well about food. And I thought, Amelia and Rachel, you know, right away. Uh, then there's a few other people who um, I'd love to get a hold of, but, you know, they're probably hard to find or they'd say no. But, um, th you know, there's some really wonderful, um, um, what's the word? Um, Asian writers, uh, like um, the author of The Vegetarian, mm -hmm. and um, I thought Pow by Mo Yan was really cool. It's really disgusting, but it's, it's, it's a cool book about food. Um, <laughs> yeah, those are the ones that come to mind. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, look for Taste Magazine in February, and I'm gonna do my best to populate it with the best <coughs> uh, food-related fiction I can find. Uh, this is a question for Jay Ryan. Yes, Beth talked a little bit about food trends in the Twin Cities. If you were to tell us about food trends in Los Angeles, what might you mention that she hasn't already mentioned? Oh, wow. Well, pop-up supper clubs and kind of invite-only supper clubs are really big. And the thing about the invite-only, they're not like exclusive. I mean, you just get on a mailing list and eventually they'll tell you when you can come. Uh, so in other words, you sort of have to leave your calendar free for, for a lot of these. And they'll just sort of say, hey, we're, we're doing our next thing Thursday, September 25th or something. You're like, oh dang, okay, I forgot I was on this list. I sent up nine months ago to eat here, <laughs> and now I've got to come to this. Um, that's, a big, that's a big deal. Because just like even, our, even my book, there's, uh, there's chefs like, like Craig Thornton, for example. He used to run a, a dinner uh, called uh, Wolf's Mouth. And what he would do is he would sort of look through the people that wanted to eat there and choose his guests for the night with an eye towards variety. So given the demand for food there and the demand for interesting um, um, culinary creations with um, chefs like Craig, um, he was able to do that. So that's one trend that I, that's successful in a city that large because of the amount of foodies and the demand for that kind of experience. Um, that said, uh, you know, um, I mentioned this earlier too, like sour beers are very, that's kind of the, it's been really popular in the beer community there for quite a while. And uh, what else? Oh yeah, people are doing, yeah, cider, of mm -hmm. course. And then um, um, food wise, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I'm, I, I, see, I see the trends in food being more kind of structural as opposed to based around particular ingredients or like trends with, I mean, certainly like the, the, the evolving seasonal menu is very common there, but it has been for a long time. Like the, like the largest recent change I see is this, the growth of these supper clubs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this kind of Byzantine entry into um, like restaurant and dining experiences. Mm -hmm. I recently went to a restaurant in Los Angeles called Trois It's a French restaurant. It's in an old pizza place called Rafalos. They didn't change the sign. <laughs> it's in a strip mall. Many of Los Angeles's best restaurants are in strip malls, like next to a laundromat or an old video store. And this one is no different. It, it, there's an old, beat up old sign that says Rafalos Pizza and all the windows, like all the shades are down. You can't see what's inside. You'd have to know that there is an extremely exclusive French restaurant in here. And that's part of the appeal, yeah. you know? Yeah, we had to make that reservation like months in advance. <laughs> and then even then, like you just get what he's making, you know, like a lot of the places are, you know, omakase style. So you go in, you just sit down and like, this is what we have, this is what you get. You can decide whether or not to have a wine pairing with each course, because maybe you're not a drinker. Uh, and that's it, that's your choice. Like you can have wine with it or not. But I thought it was great. I, that said, it's a little expensive and it's not gonna be more than a once a year type of thing, no. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and sometimes like I do see that sign and I go, I kinda want pizza actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, um, I just, Ryan and, and Beth, this has been so much fun tonight, so thank you so much for being here. And I guess this is more just a, a sort of a, a, something a little bit to add um, to what we were talking about in terms of memoirs and even I think uh, the question over here on um, thinking about why breweries are so successful and what that model is compared to different, uh, even, even farmers or even small food businesses um, or producers. So the one thing on memoirs, I recently saw this woman or this man, he was the most amazing man. His name is Michael A. Twitty. And I don't know if any of you have heard of him, but um, he is an African-American Jewish uh, um, gay man. And he has a blog called Afro Culinaria, and it is the most beautiful blog. If you can all go check it out, it's amazing. And he really talks about something called identity cooking, and he's tracing his um, roots, you know, from East Africa all the way back, um, and talking about how we express these complex identities through our food and through cooking. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's really beautiful. So I, I totally recommend that if you can see it. But the one thing that I've been thinking about that, and, and this is something we've been talking about all night is he talked about you know how we express our spiritual and cultural values through our plate or through what we drink and I think there's something about you know when Katie was talking about the breweries I think you know beer is just th something that especially in the United States it's just we celebrate it so much you know it's just it brings us together like mm -hmm. not you know it doesn't bring us together like wine does or other drinks is there's something about beer that's just it brings us together so I think that's really interesting but in thinking about um Going back to like how our cultural, how our, in our cultural food system, we really went to an, we, well, of course, we went to sort of our farming culture to an industrialized food system, right? So talking about General Mills, we really live within those confines. We live in this sort of corporate community. And I think that it's just, I think there's this really interesting intersection that we are now where the small you know, the small farms, the small businesses, the small producers, to a certain extent really do have to play with those big players, or we really do as a community have to come out and really, really strongly support 
uh, those small people um, as we do uh, breweries of all types, <laughs> whether they're good or bad, right? So, um, so it's just a sort of a fascinating way, I think, especially in Minnesota, when we do have such an amazing farming and sustainable food culture and system here, we also have general mills, right? So it's, it's, it's an interesting parallel that I think is just, um, you know, really thinking about how we are now expressing that big and small at the same time, so. You, you know, I, and I just want to add, that's what makes this area so remarkable because we really hold the world's fertility. Um, we've been the breadbasket of the world, you know, ever since this, this area was settled. And so you're absolutely right because what we've seen over, you know, the period of time that this region has emerged is both the, um, and it really came to a head right after World War II, but both the industrial food system and the organic food system kind of growing up side by side. Um, and I think it's really vibrant here. Um, and even though it may feel as though the smaller system is living under the shadow of the larger system, I think it's pretty vibrant. And um, Fred Kirshenman, who's a writer, he's a minister and an organic farmer, um, will say that that's what we need to do, is we need to grow the kind of resilience that, um, that's going on with these small entrepreneurial food businesses and breweries and cideries and things like that. So thank you, it's a nice comment. Yeah, I have, I have one last thing to say. Yeah, if anyone has any suggestions for me on additional resources or places I should explore, I'm always, always <laughs> trying to learn. Like, the more I get into researching this stuff, the more I realize how much yeah. I have, I just don't know how yeah. much, like, yeah. the mountains of information, places and resources and helpful people that are out there. So either talk to me afterwards or send me an email. My email address is on my website. I'd love to hear about things that are exciting you in breweries or in food. Uh, also, I just got back from a, a book tour in uh, Germany and uh, the German-speaking countries, and I have three um, German language editions of my book uh, up at the desk that I'll give away for free uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> to anybody who speaks German or knows someone who does who might want a German translation of my book. It's, it's, it's yeah. It's, <laughs> My pleasure to hand them out. I got a I got a box of them, and I thought, oh man, I, I can't. You know, this is, I'll bring some to Minnesota. You know, maybe uh, maybe some Minnesotans might 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 know a German speaker, or might speak German, or might appreciate it. So they're yours if you want them. And I just want to say thank you again for coming out on a cold Thursday night and fighting through Vikings traffic yeah. to be with us tonight. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. So your request for you know where you should go for more information, how you get insight, how you find more resources. There's a lot of us who would have one answer to that, which is go to your library. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I uh, truly want to thank both of you. We have um, a little gift bag of Friends oh, of the Library wonderful. goodies. I can tell by the weight it's not books, so you'll <laughs> yeah. get to look in a minute. Hope the rest of you will all join us out in the atrium for dessert reception. We also have books for sale from both our authors, and they're willing to do autographs. So again, thank you for coming. Hope we'll see you at the next uh, Friends Forum. Have a good evening. <laughs>